Good evening, ladies everybody. and gentlemen. <laughs> if I may, I would like to. I don't have a long story. We want you to be able to hear this great man speak to us. I will only say one thing. I taught for 37 years at Chatsworth High. Well, naturally, the first year we had TV all over the place. And somebody said to one of my kids, you know, what is it like having that blind teacher? Anyway, what's it like? My God. And he says, hey, man, he's not blind. You just can't see. That's all. And I knew that I had won. 37 years later, I walked out. Ladies and gentlemen, I first heard this great man with Bud Fiorillo. Remember the steamer? And this guy was such a genius. Bud was just had to be embarrassed. Bud knew the locker room, maybe. But when you got to the history of baseball or football or whatever, I said, this man is amazing. I'm going to make this short because I want our access people to be able to hear this. I'm very honored at this time to present a scholar and a friend, a man who's been on our special program series and is certainly our star, Mr. Ira Fistel. Ira, the podium is yours. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> uh, you. You really built me up there. <laughs> All right, now, um, I want to leave this to you, the people uh, who are in this room. What do you want me to tell you? What do you want me to talk about? Mark Twain is one. Mark Twain is one. All right. Uh, what else do you want to talk about? Talk about your days at KABC. Your day at KABC. Okay, do some of that. Um, and why you were a White Sox fan, that's your biggest mistake. Your <laughs> biggest, the best no. thing you did was Rachel. Oh, I think I the White uh, Sox. The White Sox, my dear sir, <laughs> the White Sox are the true team in oh, Chicago. The Cubs... <laughs> The Cubs are a uh, kind of a flossy group. Uh, Cub fans, the, most Cub fans don't even pay attention to the game. You know what they do? You know where they come? They come to be seen and to drink. That's the Cub fan. They actually did a survey some years ago on what factor detect, um, was most important in the, the Cubs' attendance. It wasn't the one lost record. It wasn't the, the players, the stars or, or not stars. It was the price of beer at the ballpark. <laughs> and that is the absolute truth. The difference between a Cub fan and a White Sox fan is a Cub fan is always sure that he's going to win sometime. The White Sox fan is always sure that he's going to lose, but it's going to be a great, a great entertainment and a great the game is a great game. Um, so with that to lead off with, <laughs> um, I'm going to say something that uh, I can really honestly say is true. <clears throat> I think I may be one of the luckiest people in the world. Uh, when I was a kid, the, what all I wanted to do was to be on radio. That's what I really wanted to do from the time I was maybe five or six years old. I wanted to be on the air. And I listened incessantly to radio. 
all kinds of radio. Um, well, what did I wind up doing for 38 years? Radio and TV. I never had to work a day at something I didn't like or didn't want to do. I taught for many, many years at every level from master's degree down to uh, middle school and uh, had a very wonderful career in teaching on top of the radio career that I was doing it mostly at the same time. So that's another thing. The third thing is, on the first day of high school, there appeared a new girl in, this, in the classroom. She was the most beautiful girl I had ever seen. She was brilliant. She was funny. She was a, just a wonderful companion. And on top of it all, she had and has more compassion for other people than any individual I have ever met. And I picked her out as the woman I wanted to be the rest of my life with when we were 13. Um, it took me three years to ask her out because she was so intimidatingly wonderful in every, in every way. Um, but I finally got around to it senior year and we dated senior year in high school. After well, senior year, we both took the same class at the University of Chicago, a class in math. I was never any good at math. She was so good at math that the professor asked her to be a math major. <laughs> she said, no, girls don't do things like that. <laughs> right? I, have, I love to uh, talk to you about her, her because she is one of the most, most incredible people I have ever, read, ever met. Her name is Rachel Burke, and she's sitting right there. After that, uh, that one math class, she went east to go to college. I stayed in Chicago. She came back to Chicago with another girlfriend from college she was going to, and we had one date in uh, Christmas vacation. She and her girlfriend sat in the back seat, and I was in the front seat driving, and um, that wasn't the idea that I had in mind. <laughs> I was expecting to be dumped all along because she was such a terrific everything. And I was always good at English and history, but I never did anything else. You know, I was never any good in uh, any other subject. Well, anticipating getting dumped, um, we stopped communicating. And... Uh, we didn't have any contact between the two of us for the next, oh, how many, how many years do you think? Forty-three years. 
43 years of absolutely no contact between the two of us. Both of us married other people. Her marriage failed first. Mine failed second. And 43 years later, we met at a college reunion, the 40th, our 40th college reunion. She had come back to the University of Chicago and got her master's, bachelor's, master's, and Ph.D. She has a long career in teaching at the university level. She was a retired professor in psychology. She taught for 33 years at Governor State University in the Illinois, in the University of Illinois system. And she's sitting here tonight. Next to me, and I love I wound up with the prize from the cereal box. And I'll never know how I do it, how I did it. But look what I got. I did I had a career that I wanted, the, the career that I wanted. I had I got the wife that I wanted forty-three years later, but um, I've, but I got her, and she's here tonight, and she's still the most beautiful girl I've ever seen, and probably the best. So, um, you want to hear it for my, my life partner, Rachel Burke. And how many years have you been married now? Well, actually, <laughs> we are married but not with a piece of paper. We have, we have been uh, together for 16 years come May. Come May. And uh, we, in those 16 years, we haven't been apart more than probably 30 days in most of that time, uh, except for the time when she was still working and I was still working we, you know, when we were in different cities. But uh, after we retired, both of us retired in 2006, and uh, I practically counted that we haven't been separated for more than 30 days in in 12 years. There's something going on here. (laughs) All right. Now, the next thing, uh, I wanted to tell you a story about Rachel. You know, I mentioned that she is a retired professor, but she had no, you know, no um, experience in speaking or you know, radio or anything like that. Well, one night I brought her to the studio and uh, went on the air on KABC. I knew that if I told her I wanted her to go on the air, that she would refuse. So I didn't tell her. I just put her on the air and said, this is Rachel Berg, and she's a psychologist, and she'll talk to you about uh, anything, personal problems and things like that. And she was such a trooper that it worked. And she did, she did several programs with, with me over the next uh, few months and years and uh, became quite comfortable at talking on radio. This goes to show you how versatile and how just wonderful this woman is. So, okay, next, uh, Mark Twain. Somebody wanted me to talk about Mark Twain, right? Yeah. Uh, 
I have written four books in my lifetime. Uh, two of them have been published. One of them I'm trying to get published now, and one of them probably will never be published. Which one is the Sherlock Holmes? The Sherlock Holmes book is the new one, the one I'm trying to get published. So anyway, <clears throat> talking about Mark Twain, the Mark Twain book was the third one I wrote and the second one published. The first published book was about the railroads and passenger trains in America. It's called America by Train. It was published in 1982, and uh, every once in a while you still pick up a copy of it on Amazon or on uh, whatever the, you know, the uh, Internet sources are. And I thought, and I still think, it was really a remarkable book because it talks about every passenger, inner-city passenger line in America. And it tells you what to look for, what, where you're going, uh, what the, what the uh, scenery is like, what the, you know, what the towns are like. Um, did you know, for example, that Eskimo Pies, which was the first national ice cream bar, comes from Nebraska? <laughs> Seriously, they were made in um, I think it was Hastings, Nebraska, or something. I know it was Nebraska. Uh, where? How does it? Uh, Nebraska? <laughs> anyway, it's that kind of book. Um, the one that is never published and probably never will be published because so much of it is now out of date was called Oddball America. And what I did was to use my own experiences in traveling the country and picking out places that I found to be unusual for one reason or another, exceptionally interesting, and maybe sometimes important, maybe not important, but fun. And I wrote 44 essays about places in America. And I called it Oddball America because I'm an oddball American. So uh, that was the <clears throat> that was the book that never was published. Uh, one of its leading chapters was about the um, what's, what's the bird uh, you know the purple mark the purple mark right. Uh, I was in the Chicago Union Station one day in the winter time. And they were passing out flyers about the Purple Martins. Did you know that the Purple Martin is the largest bird of the swallow family, has a longest flight pattern of any, any uh, North American bird, spends its winters in South America 6,000 miles away, and travels 6,000 miles down and back every year. And can eat a thousand mosquitoes a day. I'm sorry, I didn't, uh, didn't get it. Send them to Florida. <laughs> anyway, uh, this, there was a company that um, made Purple Martin birdhouses. And I figured, whoa, I've got to see this, you know. 
the town was in Griggsville, Illinois. It was the home of the Purple Martin Birdhouses. And we went to Griggsville. <laughs> the first thing you see in the middle of the street in the downtown area of Griggsville is the Purple Martin skyscraper. <laughs> and it's still there. And it's it, uh, it's designed to be with the doors, you know, open just to size for Purple Martins, but not for anything bigger that could get in. And it's tied, uh, maybe up, uh, maybe about ten stories high. <laughs> it's just remarkable, and that kind of thing just gets me. You know, I can't, I can't resist that kind of story. So that uh, that's one of the one of the things I wrote about. All right. Then comes the Mark Twain book. Uh, I had started to read Mark Twain when I was a kid, and somebody brought uh, brought a uh, copy of um, Huckleberry Finn and a copy of Tom Sawyer, and gave them to me as a match set. And they were uh, children's versions of the stories, but they were the actual Twain stories with with pictures and. Uh, you know, uh, written for children. And I remember reading Tom Sawyer particularly and then Huckleberry Finn. And I enjoyed them and I thought, oh, well, that's that's nice, you know, it's a fun book. Um, but I never thought more than that until many years later when I was in graduate school I was in I was in the history department, but you take you know you take classes outside of the department, and I took English. Well, I told you history and English have always been my subjects, and when I took the English course, we did a lot of Twain. I started reading Mark Twain seriously. I had had the Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court and had hardly read it through until I was already in graduate school. But I read Twain and became absolutely hypnotized by the man. I have no doubt in my my mind that Mark Twain is the greatest author the United States has yet produced or probably ever will produce. Huckleberry Finn is the great American novel. Don't bother to try writing the great American novel. It's already been done. Mark Twain was also a man of enormous paradoxes. Everything about the man was a paradox. He was the most successful author, highest paid author in the country up till that time. He was the most well-known American in the world at the time he was alive and yet his success as a writer was enormous, as a humorist enormous, as a lecturer and yet his personal life was hell he lost every member of his family except one before he died he lost both parents He lost brothers, he lost his sister, he lost his daughters, he lost all 
two of the three daughters, no, three, yeah, two of the three daughters he lost, and his son he lost, and his wife. You couldn't ask for a, you know, a more horrible public, a private, uh, private life. Also, <clears throat> he was a tormented man. He was uh, crushed with guilt. It started when he was still a kid, and he uh, talked about his Presbyterian conscience that had been drilled into him by his family. But later on, as a, as a senior, he was absolutely crushed, could not work, could not, would, could not write. He wrote reams and reams of pages and never could publish it, never could finish anything. And I asked myself, what is this all about? Why, why was he that way? Not only was he the most highly paid author in America ever up to that time, he went bankrupt at the age of 60 because he spent not only all of his income, but all of his wife's. And she was a daughter of a millionaire who had a fortune of $300,000 in 1880 money, and he spent it all. I mean, this is an incredible, incredible story. Why? How? And I, I read through his work, and I came up with a conclusion. I didn't write the author's biography. I wrote the biography that he put into his novels and his books. And I think they are the clue to explaining something about the life of Mark Twain. And the, the basic thing is that Mark Twain and Samuel Clemens were two different people. And the older he got, the more different they became. Mark Twain was always the wonderful uh, protector of the underdog, the, um, you know, the, the, the guiding light of uh, American, uh, American history, American literature. And Samuel Clemens was a money grubber. All he wanted to do was make a lot of money fast and not work for it too hard. Samuel Clemens wrote, uh, oh no, I'm sorry, Mark, Mark Twain wrote, don't, um, <clears throat> don't overdo it, don't, uh, don't, uh, I'm, I'm losing the, the phrase. Uh, anyway, but Samuel Clemens did exactly what Mark Twain said not to do. Now, how does that square? And Sam Clemens, I began to like less and less as I began to write, like Mark Twain more and more. And you got to read the book if you want. But uh, I don't know. It, it's his life was just absolutely fascinating, and uh, his works are terrific. Thank you.
His, his writing is absolutely terrific. So that's the basis of the Mark Twain book. And now we come to the current one, which is called The Hidden Holmes. Now, there's been an awful lot written about Sherlock Holmes and the Sherlock Holmes stories, which go back to Arthur Conan Doyle's first story, which was written in 1886 and published in 1887. And he kept writing Sherlock Holmes stories until 1927, 40 years there were 60 stories written, 56 short stories, and four novelettes. I went through all of them. I was reading Twain when I was about 12 or 13, and I know practically all the stories, sometimes almost by heart. But when I read them, the way I came across um, the last two, three, four years. I took them as serious literature because people read Twain and they think he's a funny funny man and a great detective story writer, but they don't appear to have read all the stuff that's in those stories. It's amazing. Conan Doyle was not only a great writer and probably one of the greatest storytellers ever, ever, but he also was a very acute social critic and a very brilliant man and uh, a craftsman, a writing craftsman, far better than, the, than the, the, he is credited with being. He wrote the Sherlock Holmes stories at the beginning because he wanted to ex- experiment with the idea of a a scientific detective. There hadn't been a scientific detective before he introduced Holmes, and in fact there hadn't been very many detectives before Holmes. Well, yes, he did introduce a scientific detective, but the the stories go far beyond that. He was a protector of the lower classes, for one thing. He had very little to say uh, positively about the British class system or about the American uh, craze for for wealth and, uh, and power. Um, he was a protector of the rights of women. In fact, he was the head of the organization to reform British divorce laws for 10 years. And he tried in, to uh, make obtaining a divorce more easy, more, more rational, and for the most part didn't succeed in that. But he put it in the books. He put it in the, the Sherlock Holmes stories. At least three of the stories, the motive of the crime is an inability of people to get a, a divorce. And, you, you know, you wouldn't look for that. You wouldn't think it was there. It is there. Not only that, it gets much, much deeper. <clears throat> the Victorians were known for being smug, for thinking they had the answers to everything, that the, the world was always going to be 
dominated by Britain and that the British fleet would uh, protect everybody from war. There hadn't been a war in Europe for a hundred years since Napoleon. Um, and they, the, the, the Victorians got to think of themselves as superior people. They thought, look, we lead the world in everything. We lead in industry, we lead in uh, arts, we lead in medicine, we lead in every philosophy, we lead in every department. And we will always be that way. Conan Doyle, to his enormous credit, saw through that and saw that there really was no difference between the British and anybody else, and moreover, no difference between the Britons of the, the uh, Dark Ages, so Stone Age, and the Britons of 1900. And in other words, he destroyed the idea that the Victorians had of being super people and uh, much advanced. It's all in one book. It's in The Hound of the Baskervilles. How many people here know, are familiar with The Hound of the Baskervilles? That's wonderful, everybody. But when you, uh, when you get to uh, go over it, you'll find that The Hound of the Baskervilles is not only a great horror story and a great detective story, but it's also a great social criticism of um, the society that Doyle lived in. And he wrote it at the time that society was, was active. He was destroying the beliefs of the people in Britain and their success. And, and that is something that very few writers would even attempt, let alone succeed in. So um, The Hound, I think, must be among the greatest novels ever written by anybody. Also, Doyle had other uh, interests in, in life. At the end of the Sherlock Holmes stories, he kept writing, well, I'll, I'll go back a second. He kept writing stories long after he thought that uh, he should stop. He was afraid that writing popular literature, and the Sherlock Holmes stories are incredibly popular, have been from the very first. He was afraid that being a popular writer would take away from his reputation as a serious writer. And he, he believed that his novels of old English, uh, you know, old English history would be his real work, his, his his outstanding writing. He was wrong about that because the, not, the Sherlock Holmes stories have so much in them that's just as good as anything he wrote in the novels. But he didn't believe that he could be successful as long as he was selling so many short stories. Uh, and everybody in Britain and America was reading him. And they still are. Well, what did he do? At the end of the second volume of short stories, he killed off Holmes. Rather, he tried to kill off Holmes. 
the, the readers simply wouldn't allow it. They kept bugging him and bugging him and bugging him, for, bugging him. For eight years, he wrote no Sherlock Holmes stories. But by the end of the eighth year, he was being pummeled, and uh, he, he uh, came around to the idea that he'll write a Sherlock Holmes story, which is set in the past, and therefore he won't be asked to write anymore because he will have killed off Holmes. That story turned out to be The Hound of the Baskervilles, a masterpiece. Well, what happened? His readers insisted on more Holmes stories more than before. So he, he responded by writing 13 stories which make up the, uh, the uh, return of Sherlock Holmes. If you read the return carefully, the stories of the return are quite more, much more brilliant than most of the earlier stories. There's a string of about five or six in a row that are all masterpieces. And at the end of the 12 stories that were originally supposed to be in the return, he wrote a story in which Holmes finally becomes a grown-up, mature character. And he thought that was going to be the last story he wrote about Holmes. Three months later, he wrote another one in which he does something absolutely uh, nobody has known, recognized as far as I know. He wrote a story in which Holmes doesn't do anything. Holmes is supposed to be the great detective, but the man who really solves the mystery is Inspector Lestrade, Holmes' old rival from the very first book. And what he did was to really satirize the whole idea of the detective story. And nobody sees it. Its story is called The Second Stain. If you, next time you get the, uh, you know, the uh, stories that, in a way you can, you can read them, uh, take a good close look at The Second Stain and ask what did Holmes do to solve that story, to solve that mystery? And you'll find that the only thing he did was to carry a photograph and that's all. That's the only thing he did. Well, then he announced in that story that Holmes had retired and there wouldn't be any more Sherlock Holmes stories. So he went, he, at first he tried to kill off Holmes, then he has Holmes retire. The, the people still kept, you know, kept up the demand for more stories. In the meantime, Doyle became a spiritualist. A uh, spiritualist was someone who believes in the, the possibility of contact with the dead. And it was a hot item in the uh, 1900s and 1920s. Uh, Houdini was a, a would-be spiritualist. But the difference between Doyle and Houdini is Doyle accepted it with no qualms. Houdini tried to prove that it was true and found that it, he couldn't. So uh, Doyle risked his whole reputation 
And uh, you've got to give him credit for doing it because he actually believed in it. And he kept writing stories in order to make money to support spiritualism. And the last two volumes of Sherlock Holmes stories are clearly in, inferior as a whole to the rest of the, the stories. But they're also different. There's much less crime and much more psychology. Holmes becomes a counselor in many of the last stories. And uh, he takes on the question of the woman who wants to commit suicide. And he says, keep your hands off your life. Your life is not your own to, to, to destroy. That's not the detective of the early stories. The Valley of Fear, the last Holmes novel, came 14 years after The Hound of the Baskervilles on the verge of World War I. It was completed and published two weeks before World War I broke out. And what's in The Valley of Fear? Well, the title gives you a clue. Let's see, uh, how does it go? The 23rd Psalm. I shall fear no evil for thou art with me. Right? That line he knew would be seen and known by all of his readers. And he connected the valley of fear is in the uh, 23rd Psalm with the fear that he wrote into the story of the Valley of Fear, which is about the, the American Molly Maguires, the Irishman who rebelled against the English and Welsh dominance in the coal mines in Pennsylvania in the 1870s. And what he did with that was say, how do we deal with fear? And he came up with the answer. The answer is there are two things you cannot do in the face of fear. One of them is ignore it. You can't ignore it, it won't go away. And in this case, the fear he's talking about is Britain's fear of Germany. When Germany was arming and uh, on the warpath. And he saw, Doyle saw, that Germany had the means of destroying the British Empire. The means were, among other things, the submarine and the building of a German fleet and the building of a German army. Um, so he saw England facing fear. The first thing you can't do is you can't ignore it. The second thing you can't do is to allow it to panic you. The only way you can deal with fear is with reasonable, rational, rational planning and a dose of good luck. You can deal with fear, and that's the lesson of the book. How many people have seen it? Not many. The Valley of Fear is perhaps the only major mystery novel in which Holmes or the, uh, whoever the detective is, in this case it's Holmes, he solves the mystery, but solving the mystery isn't enough because the criminal is laughing at Holmes at the end. 
he went back to Professor Moriarty, who supposedly killed off with Holmes after the second volume of short stories. It all hangs together. And you cannot dismiss Doyle as the greatest candidate to being the greatest English writer of his time. So that's what the, that's what this book is about. Now, anybody else got anything else to to talk about? I would, I would if we may. I'm sorry. We have can to, we open this we, up to questions of you? Um, sure. Some of our guys may have to leave. Yeah, we have to leave. I can. Did you have a question? No. Yes. Okay. I do. Yeah. I'm going to take. I'm going. I, I'm looking forward to your book. Let me tell everybody that Ira Fistel's Mark Twain, F-I-S-T-E-L-L, apostrophe S. I learned to spell that after 10 years. I hadn't seen it in Braille, and Ira corrected me on the spelling. Uh, Ira Fistel's Mark Twain is in Bookshare. We got it into Bookshare. I got it in Braille. I've read it twice, and I still learned I want to read it a third time. Oh. But I want to ask you if you can, in a succinct fashion... Tell us why the, you believe that Huckleberry Finn is one of the truly great novels of our history. Oh, oh absolutely. Huckleberry Finn is, a, first of all, is the great American novel. The subject is the, subject is the America of the 19th century and not the America of the pre-Civil War. It's, the novel is set in the pre-Civil War period, but his readers knew that slavery had been destroyed uh, 20 years before. So what makes it the greatest American novel is, first of all, its theme, which is the, the uh, what would you call it, the crime, the, uh, ter- the terrific horror of slavery. Slavery is the ultimate target in the book. Secondly, it's a brilliant piece of writing. Uh, from one page to another, the dialogue jumps out at you. The characters are so real. He, he creates Pat Finn in about four paragraphs, and Pat Finn is absolutely unforgettable. Nobody could ever read about Pat Finn and, and uh, not remember him. He's, he's a brilliant. Tom Sawyer... All right, I'm going to get back to this one. Tom Sawyer appears in the book. What is his role in that book? He's the villain. Why? Why is Tom Sawyer the villain? Because Tom Sawyer stands for the society that doesn't recognize anything wrong with slavery. And Tom doesn't recognize anything wrong with slavery. He starts out to uh, uh, free Jim from slavery, but he knows that Jim has already been freed, and he doesn't run any risk doing it. He does it for his own, you know, for his own satisfaction, because he wants to be uh, known as a, a big guy, you know. Uh, and the book is a, a marvelous blend of satire, of irony, and of humor. Nobody could ever have done it better. And uh, the knock on Huckleberry Finn has always been that the last 12 chapters are, quote, just cheating. No, they're not. They're satire. And satire is the art 
of attacking of some person, idea, institution by the device of creating a straw man, a straw personality, and then letting the reader make the connection between the straw man that's being portrayed and the real object of the, uh, the attack. And uh, that's exactly what Twain does in Huckleberry uh, Finn. What's it's, amazing about that is that he's, his audience to buy the book are the people that he's making fun of. And they don't realize it because he's so entertaining in the story. If, the, if he came out and said, you're sickening how you're living your life, what you're doing to other human beings... How can you do that and go home and have a celebration with your family? Would he sell a book? No. no. <laughs> but he uses a device which allows everyone to get and laugh at the foibles of the straw man, not seeing that that's how they are. That they are, exactly. See what I mean about this woman? He's amazing here. <laughs> I heard that very well. Thank you, Rachel. So anyway. Uh, any, any other questions on, on anything he talked about or anything you want to hear? Well, uh, somebody wanted me to talk about my broadcasting career. <laughs> Uh, but I can, everybody's tiptoeing out of the room. Yes, I noticed that. They got <laughs> access, yeah. So, exactly. uh, so should we just uh, say that this is the end? This will go into Son of Ira Fistel, Part 2. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'm always available. Well, we know it, Ira. Let's give him a big hand. Thank you. Thank you all. Wonderful.